Hi, this is B. Bocalandro, author of Do Good at Work, How Simple Acts of Social Purpose Drive Success and Well-Being. And you are listening to From the Heart, presented by Orange Kiwi. Hey, thank you so much. It's, it's, it's fun. B and I have been chatting here before we came on the air and we chatted on the phone as I typically will do with a lot of my guests. And it's one of those conversations where I almost thought, oh yeah, I need to hit record because we're already so engaged in conversation and it's been really fun. So B, thank you for being on From the Heart today. I'm just going to share a little bit about you first and then we'll just jump right in if that's okay. Uh, as she mentioned, she recently has uh, written and had published the book, Do Good at Work, How Simple Acts of Social Purpose Drive Success and Well-Being. Um, that right there will probably be our focus today because there's a lot right there packed into just the title of the book. Um, you were selected by Adam Grant, a Wharton professor and certainly a name that most of my listeners are very, very familiar with as one of his 30 recommended, recommended books of 2020. That's pretty awesome. I'd love to hear more about Thank that. You. Love to hear about VeraWorks, the company that you founded. And I know that you mentioned um, in conversations before that it's been a little bit of a rough year for you like it has been for a lot of people in, in the business world. Um, you teach at Georgetown and UNLV. I'm guessing that this uh, pandemic has made it so that you can be teaching in Las Vegas and Washington, D.C. at the same time from many <laughs> California. So, so Welcome. Tell me a little bit about how the whole idea of writing this book came about for you, B. Yeah, thank you, Ed. Well, you mentioned Adam Grant, and uh, you know Adam Grant is a he's he's a he's a superstar. You know, he's the youngest tenured professor ever at Wharton. He's also host of the TED uh, the Work Life Podcast, the TED Work Life Podcast. One thing that's really beautiful about him selecting my book as one of the 30 new books to read is that when I wrote this book, the entire point of the book is to put in the hands of any worker at any job anywhere in the world, hopefully it will be translated into many languages, and the work week feeling, I did something meaningful this week. I feel fulfilled. I made the world a little bit brighter. Uh, there's a child who is smiling because of my work week or a client who feels more hope or a colleague that is better at their job because I mentored them. Like I did something meaningful. I, I made a societal contribution this week. And so because the book is meant for anybody, I tried to make it... Uh, you use the word riveting. I tried that. Uh, I mean, I tried to get there because I wanted, I wanted anybody to pick it up and be able to read it like a story. But this is a little tricky because, as you know, it has 153 footnotes. It's all evidence-based. It relies heavily on all the scientific research out there. And I was committed to making it align with what we knew worked and didn't work. So when I was writing it, I, 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 I had this tension between simplifying things so that they were understandable, but not, not oversimplifying them so that they weren't true any longer. And my, <laughs> my uh, standard for doing that well was 
A, that, you know, someone could pick it up and read it and not get lost in jargon, but B, that Adam Grant would not find it to be untrue. Like literally it was, I've never, I mean, I, I met him once because we were on the same stage at one point, but I, I, I have no relationship with him or anything, but I would say if Adam Grant reads this and says, yeah, this is, this is true to the scientific literature. This is what organizational psychologists are discovering or economists, then I've met that benchmark. So I had sent them the manuscript uh, before the, uh, you know, in the spring, I sent them the manuscript and I sort of had to because I, <laughs> I cite his research and I interpret it a tiny bit differently than he did. So I wanted to make sure I was being true to that. But I had no idea he was even considering it for any list or anything. And so when I got the email that he had selected it as the top 30, I was like, oh my God, this, that was the benchmark. It was Adam Grant, like giving the stamp of approval. So it's, you know, in any, I mean, you know, in, in any situation, it would be wonderful for Adam Grant to say, yeah, this, this work is worthy. But in this one, it had that personal element to it. That's awesome. And yeah, you talk a little bit about how, you know, writing and not oversimplifying it and not overcomplicating it. College professors, you know, you teach, I teach, a lot of us that listen, you know, today also do. And one of the toughest things to do is how do I keep the, 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 the students that need it to be basic and the students that are like, okay, bring me more, give me more meat, give me more meat. So the answer I always hear is let's just teach to the middle, you know, so... Right. The, the ones that need the, the detail and the research. And I know you have a lot of data analytics background. And so I'm sure that it was really tempting to just take it there and make this a book for college professors. But then there's a lot of people who are high school graduates who don't have any of that and, and not even high school graduates, but just yeah. don't have the interest. They're not the data nerd as you self right that, you know, don't want all that data. So how did yeah. you, as you were writing the book, um, how did you, how did you test it out? I mean, were there people who read through your husband or friends and <laughs> others who maybe kind of looked through it to, to kind of make sure that you were hitting that middle mark and not over oversimplifying or overcomplicating? Yes, I had so much help. I, I can't tell you how many people I'm grateful to. You know, one thing that happened was the first book I had in mind was only for managers because of that tension that you talked about, I found the challenge of getting this concept across to anybody just too daunting. And I thought, well, managers are used to reading management books and, you know, taking MBA uh, graduate courses or certificate graduate courses. So I'll write it for that audience. But I leaked early parts of the content out in a blog as a test. Hmm. So, and I kept hearing back, well, this is great. You know, uh, uh, thanks for the advice on how to have my team and how to be a leader with purpose and ha how, how to have my team do something together. But I want to, I want to do this for my own job. And then of course I'm, <laughs> I can be really stubborn. So I kept like looking the other way. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not writing that book. I'm writing this book. Stop asking me for, and then I realized, wait, it's a legitimate request. 
if anybody can do this, it really should be me. I, this is my day job. Come on, B, what's wrong with you? So I, I had to pivot. And it's one of the reasons why it took me five years to write this book instead of the two or three that I had estimated. So, and the truth is the, you know, probably 60% of my life and 80% of my work life is the test of this book. Because yeah. I mean, as you know, it has over a hundred different examples of people doing good at work. And those are all real examples. They're, you know, distilled down to the essence in many cases. But I saw, I, I heard that or saw it in action and how it went. And so I think the concepts are kind of tested, you know, field tested, you know, for academics uh, in academic terms. But I also had, and I recommend if anybody out there, if you're thinking of writing a book, it's just get it out to people who can give you feedback and I very deliberately sent an early version of it to my most like hypercritical friend. And I told them like, just pretend you don't love me. <laughs> like just pretend I'm yeah. dead or something. And, really and boy, did he. <laughs> yeah. So he, uh, this is about a year ago and I thought I was getting close and he said, I had missed that mark, the one you talk about. And he said, you're trying to do way too much with one book. An entire section came out. It's now, you know, it's now the, uh, the, the length of, you can have a terrible Monday uh, at work, say, I got to do something about this. Order the book, you know, if you order the ebook, start reading it maybe finish reading it that night or the following night. And then on Wednesday, you can go in with a whole bunch of ideas on what you can do about your work. So, but the version he read was not that. It was somewhat of a slog and it went, <laughs> it, it, just, it, it just tried to do too much. So yes, I had lots of, lots of help. And, and there are others who gave feedback as well. Yeah, when you sent it to me originally, I dove right into the first section, which is called Floundering, Why Work Fails Us. And I, I really was fascinated by the story you told about in your 20s. You're in this job that's pay is good. You're, you got a great boss. She's giving you concert tickets. I mean, yeah. I've given away too much of the book here, but can you talk to us? Because we all have that. We all want to feel, it used to be not long ago that we thought, well, the whole social purposing, well, that's a millennial term. You know, they all want to make sure they're doing something good. But I think I'm realizing I'm a baby boomer. I'm the last year of baby boomers, born in 64. I want to be doing good as well. Certainly, I need to be able to pay the bills and love the job and the people I work with. And thankfully, I do. I mean, I don't feel like I work anymore. I just feel like I get to wake up every day and play and pay the paycheck every two weeks, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, and I get to go out and do community things, too, anytime I want to. But it really is something I'm finding, not only from reading your book, but also from conversations with a lot of people you and I know mutually, um, that, that social purpose is so critical. So go back, you're in your 20s, you're in this job, you know, kind of tell us about that chapter, if you will. Not the chapter of the book necessarily, but that chapter right. of your life. Yeah, so I'm in my 20s and I have the job of my dreams really, because I just finished graduate school and I really wanted to, 
I love data analysis. Like I can spend all, I'm an introvert. I can spend all this time with a database and make sense of it and, uh, and lose myself in it. So it's like, Oh shoot, I forgot to have lunch. You know, one of those experiences. And I start realizing that I'm kind of lying to people because on paper, my life looks really great. And they're like, how's everything be? And I'm like, it's great. Really? It's great. And I'm thinking it should be great. I have this wonderful boss and I have colleagues that for the most part bring joy into my life. I'm doing the work I said I wanted to do, the work I trained to do. And yet I don't feel great and I'm getting paid enough and I, I'm getting raises fast. Like I, I, I think this, my first employer was afraid to lose me because I worked with clients. So I literally like every two months, I was like, we're giving you another raise. So I'm getting raises fast and, and I'm not waking up in the morning and going, oh, I can't wait to get to my computer and start doing the analysis that I love. And I was, I really started feeling lost. I, I actually called it an existential crisis. And so I tell people, well, I got my existential crisis out of the way in my twenties. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and I didn't really find my way out of that elegantly. I took another job that was like eerily similar to the one I left expecting something different. And it, it, it wasn't, it didn't feel different. And it wasn't until much later when I had started doing this work of bringing social purpose into workplaces and jobs and brands and that I realized, oh, <laughs> uh, what, what was wrong with me is what's wrong with the majority of corporate workers right now is that I didn't have a social, a sense of social purpose. I didn't feel like what I was doing really mattered, you know, it mattered for, you know, the owners of the company. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just mattered with a very small M, you know? (laughs) And uh, so, and you know, you, you talked about feeling like you're, you don't work any longer. And that actually is, the way work historically like prehistorically felt like for humans it's so much so and the reason anthropologists know this is because prehistoric societies have no word for work Hmm. and we have many we have like toil labor grind work and they're all negative right (laughs) Right? and Something, you know, this is kind of a longer discussion, but something shifted in somewhere in our, you know, in our history as humans, where work started feeling like something separate from the life that we loved. It used to be, apparently, you know, if you're like 20,000 years ago and you wake up in the morning, the hunting expedition is going to go off uh, and you're like, woohoo, you know, it's kind of like going to play golf now. And, and in fact, people hunt for fun now. So yeah. it's kind of, and, and if you didn't want to go, and it wasn't seen like, <laughs> what's that? And people golf for work. 
kind of right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's true too. Yeah. And we envy them, right? We're like, wow, they get to play a game for, <laughs> for work. Yeah. So it, it, that is actually, those two examples of hunting and golf are actually much more similar to what our birthright is than what we've turned work into. And so, and I know it's possible to do that because I've experienced it, you've experienced it. Many other workers have experienced it. Uh, you know, my, my father was an example of that, no matter what work he did. So the challenge is how do we help everybody feel that way? You know, wake up and, and feel like it's, they're going to play golf or they're going to hunt or they're going to, you know, read a book for fun more than, oh, I got to. I got to face that project. I got to get through this textbook or I got to get through this project or yeah. yeah. I used to get what my wife termed the Sunday night blues, which was, you know, I just, I love my week. I still do love my weekend time with wife and kids and grandkids now and friends and even in COVID love the weekends. Um, but yeah, Sunday nights, I just, and it wasn't that I hated my job or my boss or anybody else. It was just, I didn't feel like I was, maybe I wasn't being fulfilled. Maybe it's because I wasn't investing myself the right way and I wasn't working smart or fully committed and I'm, you know, guilty as charged. I've lost jobs and a lot of it was my performance and I'll admit that right here, but I would go to bed Sunday night, just dreading going to work the next day. And a lot of it was, I just didn't feel fulfilled. And it's like, well, yeah. it's a nice paycheck. And I worked with some really lovely people, but there was something just kind of missing. So can you tell having, experience this yourself. I know your finger went up, so you want to make a point. So once you make that point and then I'll ask my question. Okay. Yeah. You, you mentioned that, you know, I'm at fault because my performance wasn't what it should be. But what a lot of people don't realize is that often the problem with performance is purpose. There's a professor at uh, university of California in Berkeley, uh, Hansen and he, um, Morton Hansen, and he did research for five years on thousands of thousands of workers. And he was trying to figure out what makes workers effective, high performing. And one of the things he discovered was that we need passion. So we need to enjoy what we're doing. Sure. And we need purpose, which we need to feel like it matters. And he defines purpose the same way I do, which is a contribution to others or to a societal cause, something bigger than us. If you have both passion and purpose at work, on average, you perform in the 80th percentile. So you're, you're in the top 20% of performers out there. If you, take perp if you take passion away, so now you're no longer doing what you love. Like what you really love is maybe you wanted to design clothing and you know, you're doing something else. You're doing copy editing because that's the job you could get. Mm -hmm. And you know, there are a lot of young people in that situation right now, given the economy. And th those are the lucky ones, right? Because at least they have a job. job right. So the good news to those of you who, who are there is that if you bring purpose into the job, you will still be at the 60, you will be set up, let's put it that way, to perform on average at the 64th percentile. Okay, so that is still way up there, yeah. right? Now, if you 
take purpose away, but you're doing what you love. So let's say you got that job as a clothing designer. It's like, this is what I really like to do. I like to choose the fabric and, you know, how it flows. And I get totally lost in this. But you're designing that for very rich people, just adding one more thing to their closet. And you're like, hmm, is the world any better because of me? Now you're down to the 20th percentile. So you're close to rock bottom. So... I think it's easy for us to beat up on ourselves and go like, what's wrong with me? Like I should be able to perform better. And we rarely look at social purpose as a culprit or at least a factor in undermining our performance because we're, this isn't a cognitive thing. This is all subconscious essentially. It's actually physiological. Like we, we, we have, our, our bodies function better, literally, when we are doing something that is meaningful than when we're doing something that we think is not. And so we just, we don't connect the dots that way. We just think, well, I need to work harder. So that's, I think your experience is quite common. Mm-hmm. I, the word that came up for me as you're talking is the word legacy. I work with family businesses primarily. Uh, many of my guests and almost all my clients are family-owned companies, and that's where I—that's the pool I swim in all day long. And yeah. it would be really easy for me to just provide programs and, and resources for them. But where I've gone from—and I'm just going to make this personal to Ed Hart for a minute—but I think that I represent a, a, a pretty decent chunk of, of our audience, anyway. Is that just like you said? I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm really passionate about this. I mean, I. I love family businesses and I love serving family businesses and serving with family businesses and I've worked in them before and that's great. Am I getting wealthy doing this? No, but that's not my goal. My goal is to put food on the table and shelter for the family and, you know, save a few bucks and so forth. And that's happening where I shifted from this 20th percentile probably to, I feel like I'm in the 80th or 90th at this point is, is when the job took on purpose. When I started really, and honestly, and this happened a few years ago, but it really has happened in 2020. And I've looked at oh, wow. my purpose here in this year in the, in the world where we're now mostly working from home. Um, people are suffering physically, financially, emotionally, every possible way this year. Yeah. And I've taken it upon myself and my wife and I and my, and my clients within the family business arena to figure out how can we leave an impact from what we're getting to do this year. So I go to that word legacy because a lot of families, that's their focus. And a lot of what I do is, I don't mean I want to leave a legacy that my kids are going to look say, look what dad did, or look what grandpa did. And wow, the world's a better place because that heart was here. Yeah, I hope that, but I have no control 50 years from now what people say. But what I am hopeful is that I find the purpose for what I'm doing and I'm feeling like I'm finding that. Yeah. And um, how, can you recognize in a person, you're an, you're, I'll call you an expert, not just because you've written a book. I mean, writing a book doesn't make anybody an expert, but maybe a little more, more knowledge. But can you personally recognize when someone has purpose in their life and what they do just by a one-minute conversation? Or you can probably see it in people's faces at times. <laughs> um, I'm like notoriously bad <laughs> at reading people. I'm I like, I think everybody's a 10 and every, you know, in every regard. And, 
And so, you know, I, I've, I've like taught classes and someone in the back of the room will keep raising their hand and I'll just keep calling on them and answering. And then in the break, my boss will be, what's wrong with you? Why do you keep calling on the person who's like trying to undermine you? And I was like, she is? I didn't see that. even notice. <laughs> so I think that for me, it's more like I just assume, I mean, this, I live in this space, right? So I just, I, I know that the stats say exactly the opposite, but I assume that everybody, of course, you're going to seek out social purpose in your job and do good. And, and then I'm like shocked when someone tells me I, there is no one at my work that I can trust. There is no one that would, uh, you know, hand me the note of what I missed in a meeting just to make sure that you know, if I dropped off a call just to make sure that I had everything I need and I would never do that for someone else. Like I am completely shocked when I hear stories like that. So I might not be the best person. And of course, because I'm so scientific oriented, I'm, I, I, you know, I, I'm cautious about saying, yeah, I can tell, uh, right. but, but I feel like I can in the negative, but what I will say is that there is research showing that, so they took uh, students, business students, and they divided them into two groups. And one group, they were helping the same, uh, they were consulting with the same bookstore, but one group was just told this bookstore, you know, revenue has dropped X percent in the last three years, uh, go help them improve their revenue. And by the way, if you do well, you'll get paying jobs. So there was like a monetary incentive there. And, and your team, you know, your, it's, your personal success is kind of linked to this. Then the other group was told, hey, this, this bookstore has a rev plummeting re revenue for the last three years. It's a family owned business. You'll like this story. It's a family owned business. Uh, they, uh, you know, it's uh, their livelihood depends on it. They employ, you know, six people, look at their pictures, you know, just a much more human contribution presentation of the, 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 the task at hand. And then they had third party graders on the consulting. They had no idea there were two groups. They were blind to this. So these are people that grade consulting advice all the time. And the group that, uh, that had the social purpose positioning of the job did much better. In fact, they worked better together. They argued less, they were more cooperative, all these things. So my point is whether I can or not, people can. <laughs> Yeah, somebody we can. can. Absolutely, sure. Yeah, we and and we may not think it's because of social purpose, but I think if we think back to people that were like, "Wow, they're hitting work on all cylinders and they're happy and they're fulfilled," that's not to say that they don't have challenges. I mean, I'm sure you have all sorts of challenges, and there are days where you want to pull your hair out. But yeah, that's another conversation. <laughs> that's, yeah. yeah, but if you think of people like that. And then you compare them to people who, you know, are 
complaining about their job a lot or just can't wait to get out or can't wait to retire, that distinction right there is often the social purpose divide. And so we can kind of all tell, even if we don't think that that's why. Sure. Now, one of the, one of the terms that I see in your book a lot is the word job purposing. Mm-hmm. Can you take me through that a little bit? I mean, I've, 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 I've looked at the back of the book and I've read it and I know the answer, but I'm curious how that term came about. And um, yeah, talk about job purposing for me, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, so job purposing is anything that we do as part of our work experience to make a social purpose contribution. That can be helping a colleague figure out PowerPoint, frankly. Uh, And that can be redefining your new, your family run business as a a, a zero waste or zero environmental impact. So it can be something very small. It can be something lofty and large, but you've done something to shape your work week Mm -hmm. or work in general towards social purpose. And, um, so that that that's what job purposing is. Okay. There's a quote in your book that I love, and and um, from Poppy, your dad. Yeah. And uh, I, I I wrote this down when I read it, and I've shared it with a lot of people. Uh, shared it with my wife last night, and she goes, well, "Send that to me. I got to write that down." And I love this because to me, this resonates with everything we've talked about in our first 25 minutes, and probably where we're going to go the rest of the way too. And that is. And you, my listeners and viewers, are going to love this too, especially the ones I know well. Uh, Listen beyond the clamor of your wants for the whisper of the world's needs. I love that. I mean, I just, to me, that's so powerful because, yeah, it's really easy for us to make lots of money and be in a job that we love and work with people we love and we're fulfilling, you know, everything I want. I've got the house, I've got the car, I've got the trips to Maui, I've got. I've got, I've got, I've got, everything's just, you know, wonderful. And I don't necessarily mean that that has to be materialistic. And I don't think you mean that either necessarily, but, and fulfilling the world's needs. I can't just, you know, provide clean drinking water to, you know, kids in Nigeria who don't have it if I don't have the wherewithal to do it. So walk me through that delicate balance of, yeah, I have to do what I love doing and I have to do what the world needs, but I have to make a living. So can you walk through that kind of balance for us a little bit? I can. I'm going to show you. I'm going to have a visual of that. I love that. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> yeah, for those that so. are listening, it's a picture early on in the book, a drawing of her, her dad with that quote. We're going to talk about your drawings comment in your bio, too. I got to go back to that in a little while. She's in yeah. Our, our team. Yeah, so I tried to, as you know, there there's a lot of wisdom from a lot of different people in this book, you know, sure. from my dad to Oprah to Melinda yeah. Gates and a bunch of academics. So when a quote I thought was really fundamental to a concept I just for fun, I was like, well, let's highlight the quote with a cartoon drawing mm-hmm. so that he's, he's the first one in the book like that. So uh, making a living is really important. Of course. Uh, it's essential and there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing wrong with 
that being, frankly, it, it can even be like your number one priority, especially if you, if, it, I mean, it, it should be your number one priority. And if you, if your safety isn't secured, if your shelter isn't secured, if your food isn't secured, uh, that should probably be your number one priority. What's interesting is that we tend to think that being focused on social purpose and being focused on ourselves, or it's like a seesaw, right? Yeah. So if I'm more focused on social purpose, then I'm less focused on myself and then I'm going to starve, right? And uh, speaking of Adam Grant, uh, he, he's, he's also quoted in the book. I'm not going to try to quote him off of memory, mm -hmm. but what research finds is that to say the more social purpose I have, then uh, the less I make is kind of like saying the more humorous I am, the less vegetables I eat. They're yeah, yeah. completely independent. They're exclusive, sure. Yeah, they're completely independent. Although that's true for me. I don't eat a lot of vegetables and I'm a pretty funny guy. So. <laughs> Well, if you're going to have to choose between the two for the rest of us, good choice. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know what your wife thinks about that, but yeah. <laughs> so, so um, we're like, we're more capable than we think of doing both. And I don't think that we should feel bad about wanting a raise. We, we shouldn't. And again, I'm, I, the, the research is backing me up on this, but I also feel strongly there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with saying, I want that 20% bonus and boy, I'm going to make three more calls today. And that's what I have in mind right now. What we should be aware of though, is that that motivation, uh, it, it, peters out mm -hmm. pretty quickly, both in terms of time, like some research shows it's just a couple of days, but also in terms of where you are, you know, on, on that, you know, life comfort scale, right? So once you have safety and shelter and all those basic needs met, that motivation doesn't work very well. So I don't think they, they contradict each other. I don't think they cancel each other out. I just think what happens is that we think we can really only do one. So unfortunately, uh, but fortunately, you'll see why I'm saying this. Uh, there are so many needs out there. I mean, you know, you have someone on your team who is going through a difficult time because they just found out their spouse has cancer. Okay. Uh, you, have, you have clients that are, or customers that are having a really hard time. You have trash in the parking lot. You have, um, you know, plastic that you're using going into the ocean. Like there are so many needs in the world that we could help meet that there is a way to contribute, to choose those that you can contribute to and that don't derail you from getting that bonus. Yeah. And so I, I actually advise that if there's an opportunity to do social purpose in front of you, 
but it's going to it's it's going to undermine your ability to get that management job find a different way to contribute don't do that one yeah. you yeah. talked about contribute and we all hear that there's three and i've heard a fourth from dr ken blanchard who i've gotten to know pretty well over the last few years the time oh, you uh, yeah. he, he's amazing and he's yeah. he, I love the interview you did of him. Yeah, that was my first guest. Thank you. That was uh, to get him, and, and there's a story behind that. But yeah, Dr. Blanchard is, is a close friend and a mentor, and I'm just so blessed to have a couple of my books behind me or our books by him. But we've all heard time, talent, treasure. He added, when I heard him speak for the, one of the first times, the word touch, which is really that, you know, kind of that emotional, not just the physically being there with somebody, which is a big part of it, when you hear those three or add in touch, those four time, talent, and treasure, lots of different ways we can give from your background, and let's just maybe just talk your experience, expertise or not, but your experience, what's the most satisfying to you to give of your time? Probably the answer is it depends. I get that that's probably the answer of just about everything. But for you, if have you found more that you get more when you write a check or you get more when you give someone just time with them? or maybe you have a talent that others need and you give of that. Is there anything for you that works most or that you see in your research or in conversation with folks? Yeah, so- I don't want the person making $10 an hour to know that they don't have to wait till they're a millionaire to start right. having more social purpose. And I don't want the person who's oh, a millionaire to think they just have to write a check. Yep. Yep, people listen to Ed. He's right. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> That's exactly yeah, right. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what's amazing is that in the book, I, I've talked about the relationship between giving and performance. And really a lot of the book is if for no other reason, do good at work because you'll be higher performing. You'll be more motivated. You'll mm. like your job more, but yeah. you'll also be healthier. Yeah. You'll also be happier. And now there's research coming out that you'll be richer. So uh, a lot of it is about uh how it serves you better to contribute to others, right? The, the interesting thing is that the person, it appears that if all you can do is uh, be kinder, just be mm -hmm. kinder to whoever you interact with at work. And that might mean like remembering that they have kids and writing down their name so that the next name they the next time you talk to them is say hey you know how did margaret's uh you know whatever yeah. i was going to say soccer yeah. game but those don't exist any longer yeah, say, yeah. <laughs> virtual soccer yeah. game go video games yeah <laughs> right virtual soccer game go yeah. if that's all you can do you are actually going to benefit from just as much of all those things, the performance boost, the, the, the happiness boost, the, the uptick in your, in your um, immune response, our immune system is stronger if we're, if, if we're doing pro-social things. Then uh, the billionaire who just wrote the check for $2 million. So we, we're wired to kind of notice that it's a social purpose thing and go, oh, let's drop the cortisol, the stress hormone, and let's bring up the oxytocin and let's bring up the dopamine. And, and that is triggered with, and then they've 
they've tested this with as little as a $5 donation. And they were Canadian dollars. So it's even less than five, five US. My Canadian friends are going to love that. I tease with them all the time. That's great. And my wife's so, Canadian in her heritage. Yeah. And then they tested it with, well, what happens if you give a $20 donation? And it was no different. So I, I love your point about if all you can do is something small, do that. Because you will start benefiting from these things. And the other thing is that small thing could be huge for someone else. There's, you know, one time I was at the Dallas airport and I heard the security line um, officer who was checking IDs. And of course, IDs have her birthday, right? just sing happy birthday to this middle-aged woman. And, you know, he sang very well and it was very short, but upbeat. And so when I got up to the front of the line and I was like, oh, is that job purposing? Like, what is that? Like, or does he know her? I, I didn't know, right? So I'm always doing research. I'm always asking people like what brings, like, you know, I get in an Uber and I'm like, when do you feel a sense of purpose? You know, I'm, I'm, you're an <laughs> I'm kind of a nerd. I'm annoying. Don't sit next to me in a plane. You're a nerdy introvert. So you want the data, but you're introverted. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, once, once I have the data, just shut up. Don't tell me anything yeah, else. Don't ever know the rest. Yeah. <laughs> right. Boy, right. you figured me out quickly. Ed. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I ask him, oh, hey, I, did I hear you saying happy birthday? And he tells me this story that he's, uh, he's a singer in a punk band and, he loves singing and so this is kind of a passion thing too, right? He has this work where he, he doesn't, he has his day job where he didn't get to sing. But one time he, he was kind of messing around with doing this to people for uh, singing happy birthday to people. And then this gentleman came in and it was in the evening and uh, he had mobility problems and he sang the, his syncopated quick happy birthday to him and this, this, this gentleman looked up at him and, you know, had watery eyes and said, do you know that you're the only person who has recognized my birthday today? Wow. And so Adesh, that's the name of the security officer, said, when I heard that, I was like, I'm never skipping another one because I don't know what I might be contributing. Yeah. And there was a female officer, you know, on the lane next to it. And she jumped into the conversation and she, she said, I, I loved her point because she said, I've, you know, I've heard several people tell Adesh, it's like, wow, you just made my day. And it was a terrible day until right now because no one had recognized my birthday. I guess he hears that like once a week or something. But she also said, uh, which I thought was such a brilliant point. She said, and you know, all those other people that maybe they've received dozens of birthday texts and Facebook notifications and who knows what about their birthday. She goes, but I have no doubt that that, that moment, there was more joy in their life as well, even if they aren't in a, in, in a bad place. And that's the one and, that they're going to remember when they tell people in a week or two, how was your birthday? Let me tell you what happened at DFW Airport. <laughs> right. It's a great story. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. It's unexpected. And that's actually, so really no kind act is too small yeah. to make Think a difference. Think of the starfish story, which I'm sure you're familiar with. The, the what story? The little boy. Oh, the starfish. Yes. Yeah, starfish. I love that story. Just 
one starfish at a time into the ocean. The guy says, what are you doing? I'm, I'm saving these and there's millions of them. And, you know, for those that haven't heard it, it goes on that the gentleman says, well, you can't, you know, make a difference to all of these. There's millions of starfish on the beach. And the little kid picks one up, throws it in the water and says, I just made a difference to that one. Right. That sticks with me. I, I love that. I, I've heard that story and told it hundreds and hundreds of times in my life. Yeah. It still makes me emotional because that's, that's the key right there. That's the, yeah. the one person. And I think that, so that answers my question a little bit. I mean, as far as, you know, yeah, it, and it varies. I, I used to take the train into LA every day for work and it was about an hour long train ride. And some days I would just take the train and read a book. Some days I'd talk to the guy or the gal next to me. Some days I would make it a conscious effort that, okay, I'm going to smile at 10 people on this train today and not say a word. Those were the best days. I never got, rarely, sometimes, but very rarely did I ever get any feedback from anyone yeah. of the difference it made. Yeah. But I know because they simply smiled back that it made a difference. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to be a millionaire to smile at somebody and change their day. Yeah. And again, we're hardwired for this. Like when, when you smiled at, you know, those unsuspecting strangers or whatever, whether they knew it or not, physiologically, they are now poised for a happier day. Yeah. Like they might, their brain might not, their frontal cortex might not register it, but there are parts of the brain going, yippee, yippee, <laughs> this is great, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it's just sometimes we just don't, you know, let me, let me interject one second here and I'd love to get your response to this and I apologize for interrupting, but it's my show, so I get to, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you can just edit me out anyway. No, 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 never. I'm going to edit me out. Trust me, I'm going to block this side of the screen and only have it be you. I've heard people say, and I've said it myself too, and an observation that I've noticed in 2020 is we're living on Zoom and MS Teams and all these other platforms where we're virtual right now. That, yeah, the difficult part of this is we're not having had a conversation with Joe Hernandez today. He's with our bank that is our big title sponsor for the Center for Family Business. And we were talking about how we miss the human interaction, and I do. And we get a little of that still. But what I am loving about this, and I hate to go all silver lining during COVID, but what I do love about this is the, the intention in every conversation now seems more authentic than ever before. I can't remember the last time I said to somebody, hey, how you doing? When I really was just saying, hey, I see you, and I'm going to go on to the next thing in my day. Now, right. if I could be how you doing, I'm waiting for your response. We're, we're going somewhere with this. Yeah. And... Um, so that, I guess for me and my personality type, I like that because I feel like I'm, I may not be connecting with as many people right now as I did eight months ago, but I'm connecting more deeply with those that I am. So yeah. anyway, that's just my little side note and my listeners have heard me say it before, but I just, for me, it just kind of came up. Yeah. You know, you asked the question, when is it most fulfilling? When is social purpose, uh, acts of social purpose uh, more self um, when are acts of social purpose most fulfilling for me? And we know, I keep going to the research, but it's, it's true for me as well. As, as you, you know, in the book, there are eight drivers of high impact job purposing, and I'm not going to go through all eight of them, but the, the idea is that research has shed a lot of light on why doing good for others feels so good is so helpful for our careers, for our wellness, for all of that. 
and they're synthesized into eight drivers. Um, the acronym is We Give It, which is a little dorky, but hopefully it's memorable. <laughs> so, but I do want to mention just two okay. because it's very relevant right now to our virtual meetings. And one of them is impact evidence. So it's, that's I in, in, in the acronym, of course. And that is if we, uh, so this, your smile example was a good one because you were doing that and it doesn't sound like you had evidence that it helped anyone. Uh, and that's still a great thing to do. And you probably intuitively knew it did because people have smiled at you and you know that. But if you try something like that and you're like, well, or this didn't really do anything for me. Like I, I actually forgot I did that. You know, it, it was that non-memorable. It might be that you don't, your, your cognitive brain doesn't have information that it actually helped. So uh that's that is one of the factors that makes it feel fulfilling to us the other one which is closely related and this is where i pulled from adam grant research and uh is viscerally felt so our brain can tell us that five dollar donation is going to do something for the victims of the wildfires and California or Australia or wherever. Uh, but there's no emotional message that says the same thing. And the emotional message us usually comes from the human interaction. Yeah. So it's that, it's that person who lost their house saying, I, you know, with, teary eyes probably I can't tell you how grateful I am that the community came together and you know got us temporary housing near where you know I, we needed to be or whatever so I think both of those in some senses are disrupted because we're not face to face with people at work and we, we we're not sitting across from them in the meeting room and someone goes oh my god you could, you know, that you saved my life. Thank you for mentoring me on this or helping me with that. And, and so they're both disrupted because of that. And so I think that the way that you're in, you're using the vir virtual communication and asking that question and really checking in with people is a bridge to that again. And that's probably why it's gone so well. Um, so anyway, that's, that's your story in your second order, right? Yeah, no, I like that. So what else, share anything you'd like about the book and what, I mean, not so necessarily what caused you to write it and everything, we can read about that, more of the why. And um, are there, you know, I've got some, I've got all the chapters listed in my notes here and I have a few that I have bold that I thought I'd go to, but I'd rather just defer to you. Maybe what have some of the, the results been? I know it's new, I know it's just come out, but certainly, yeah. you know, top 30 books to read Adam Grant certainly I know a couple of the people that have you know given testimonials in there Ryan Gottfordson who was my previous guest prior to you yeah I love Ryan yeah Ryan at Cal State Fullerton as well and I've read his book and getting to know him but what are some of the early returns here we are on election year let's talk about early returns that you're finding either for, you <laughs> for those that are reading the book yeah uh you know so the 
early versions of the book, I would send them to people and go, you know, give me your feedback. And they would, they would give feedback on the book, just like I had asked, you know, this section. Like you fell little... apart a year ago and you took the whole section out, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But when I knew I was, it, it was getting close was when the feedback became, I'm, I'm sorry, I stopped reading at chapter four because I realized, oh my God, I've been doing my, my staff meetings all wrong. Like there's no sense of social purpose. And I have three ideas on how we can end every social, every, every uh, staff meeting with uh, people knowing that they make a difference or the team making a difference together or, uh, uh, you know, shining light on a cause. So that's when I knew, oh, okay, this is what, this is what I'm hoping for, that it actually is actionable. And I was over the moon that one of the adjectives that Adam Grant used to describe the book is that it is actionable. And so, uh, yeah, so I love seeing how people are applying it. And there are very few readers at this point because of course it doesn't officially exist yet, but it's making me, <laughs> it's, so anyway, that's one example. And then when they wrote me that, when they wrote me that email, that reader that said, I, 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 I'm sorry, I stopped at chapter four. And then by the time I came back, I, so I'm, I'm going to, it's going to take me longer to read, to read the whole book and give you feedback. I actually shared a story that comes from our friend Charles Antis, mm -hmm. because what he does at staff meetings is there's one staff, one team member recognized at every staff meeting and they get a charitable donation card. Yeah. And I don't, I can't remember what the amount is, but let's just, you know, it's like 30, $30 or something. They can contribute these $30 from Antis Roofing to whatever nonprofit they'd like. And then at the next staff meeting, they're invited to share why, who they chose and why. And so you have people explaining how hospice made the last weeks of their mother's life and how the, and it, you can, you can see how this tilts the whole culture toward something bigger than just coming into work and saying, we're gonna do 14 and a half roofs, you know, right uh, get them done and uh i mean it, it's such a powerful practice and if you hear anybody who is in those staff because i always ask about it when i see their staff but um when i see charles staff if you hear anybody who's at those staff meetings describe it you completely get why it's so visceral yeah and uh why it's so powerful but it's a simple thing to do so uh, I can't claim credit for that one. Charles came up with that. Yeah, and I've been hearing <laughs> you talking about that. And and, yeah. and he shared even just on that conversation he and I had with Ryan last week about the shift in his his team when he went that way. And especially this year. I mean, I know he's been doing it for prior than 2020, but yeah. this year I'm seeing him and Wayne Lamb of Bois, who's out feeding people. And I've been to the blood drive a couple of times at Angela Proofing and given blood. And I've seen people there that are like, doing it for the first time and just that that you know what, i talk a lot about what and why and that why you know now i'm doing this and i'm i, I get it and the employees at Antis roofing are seeing 
their leader out there in the community giving. Yeah. And I think not only are they inspired to give because of the, the gift cards that you just talked about, but also they're seeing that he's, he's practicing what he's preaching. He's out there doing it too. Yeah. Can you go yeah. ahead? Oh, go ahead. Oh no. Yeah. Let me just say something about that. Cause I said there's eight drivers and okay. one of them is tenderly led. And so for those of you out there who are managers, if you, if you care, I mean, frankly, if you just care, I mean, of course you care. It's whether you show that you care. And I know that that, means vulnerability but if you care about COVID affecting people about the economic downturn you know increasing unemployment about your own staff having to uh, juggle all these difficult things that they didn't have to juggle before if you just care you will be a better manager yeah. and that's what that's one of the things that Charles in his own telling of his own story, he just kind of discovered that like, it's okay to be vulnerable and actually it's productive. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's, that is contrary to what a lot of us feel we've been told, which is like, you know, you should, if you're going to lead people, you know, you, you got to be just solid as a rock all the time and not, be emotional and it turns out that that's that's a good way to undermine your leadership yeah well you can't lead people you can't connect with and one of the ways we connect is through that caring that humility we talked with exactly. Brian last week about vulnerability and about humility and servant leadership and that comes up almost in every conversation i have not just because of ken planchard although it's big yeah servant leadership's a term that goes back a couple thousand years at least Yep. When you work with these companies like Aetna and Allstate, Caesars Entertainment, Disney, et cetera, I mean, the list is, is long. What types of things, I mean, I know it's different with everyone, but what's, why do they bring you in? And, and this is a chance to plug you a little bit because I, you know, I want this to be more than just a fun hour that we get together and for the listeners to be edified by this, which I'm sure they are. But certainly as a, as a thank you to you for spending this time with me, you know, tell me what kind of work you do with these companies. If there's a company out there right now that's struggling with figuring out either what their company purpose is or trying to help their team members figure out what their individual purpose mm -hmm. is. Because you don't have to have 3,000 people who work with you all having the same purpose and you're not going to have that. Right. So what, what type of work do you do with these companies to help them in this social purpose arena? Yeah, so often there's a pain point, which is why they call me. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and the pain point might be, frankly, uh, so there's one business that called me a few months ago that Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, is, uh, and you know they're the largest asset fund in the world, I think, is one of their investors. And he wrote in a letter <laughs> in January and January the year before, we're going to stop investing in companies that don't have social purpose. So sometimes the pain point is that business related. And, and yeah. so they're like, okay, we got to do something because we need them as an investor. And sometimes it's, People knowing, maybe not, you know, all the research that we've talked about, but knowing partly intuitively, partly out of experience, 
partly uh, reading other people's great books out there that lay of they lay the foundation for a lot of what's in my book that it's not quite right to have work without social purpose and so often when it's a millennial calling me hmm. they're 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 starting from there they're just like I, okay, I finally got to the point where I have enough budget to kind of decide what it is that I can do with my own team. And I'm pretty sure that it would be a really great thing to bring social purpose into my team. Sure. And so, yeah, I think, and I think the second is happening more and more. I mean, I, I don't think there's an, you know, some people have called this that we're in a purpose revolution. You know, we had the information revolution and the agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution, you know, not in that order. I got them all wrong, but, yeah. and now we're in a purpose revolution. And I do think that there's, uh, there is this awakening happening as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah. So then I help them meet that need, you know, help them figure out what it looks like. And, um, how to balance that because like we said there could be a hundred or two hundred or a thousand or three thousand employees and yeah like what charles is doing here's your thirty dollar giving card yeah and go figure out where you're going to give and then more importantly come back and tell us the why yeah yeah, yeah. and you know one one of my favorite things to do i mean i, I certainly help like figure out what to do so like for example uh, caesar's entertainment they uh, they're really social purpose oriented actually and win awards for it every year and they're very generous so i can share their <laughs> their case studies uh and so one of the things that that they realized was you know we have hotels and anybody who runs a hotel is at risk of inadvertently um, harboring sex trafficking mm -hmm. and so uh they're executives were really just personally kind of disgusted when they kind of realized this and they wanted to do something about it. So they started by training uh, their security staff on what sex trafficking is, what it's like to be a victim, yeah. that they are victims. You know, they're uh, typically the people who are uh, performing the sexual acts for commercial purposes uh are doing it uh because they have to it's under duress of some you know so right. they're they're it, you know it's this is not a choice the slavery yes and those trains so i get to analyze their data and again they're very generous about me sharing it but the data shows that these you know the security staff and you know they 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 formally had a really hard line it's like no that woman broke the law and you know this it wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of empathy a whole lot of compassion they take the training and they become essentially like victim advocates and it kind of shifts their their job more towards social purpose and i know so there's a pretest and a post test and i know that their sense of purpose goes up and so does their um, their willingness to work harder at the job or their employee engagement but what what really amazed me was that there was a supervisor 
who was against this to begin with, because it's like, well, what does this have to do with our job? We just have to like, you know, follow the law and the regulations. And uh, this is like, this is not our problem. Like, why should our brand be caring about this? And I talked to him after he had gone through the training and I asked him, what did you think? And he said, I can't believe like how narrow-minded I was. Mm-hmm. And this part of my job, this helping to reduce the global issue of sex trafficking is the part of my job I am now least willing to give up. Love that. And, you know, the, this training was pretty sophisticated, but if you, but it's short, it's, it's only an hour long. But if you think about it, this is not a huge intervention. Like it's not like designing a social purpose uh, program or, I mean, I, I even hesitate to use program because it doesn't have to be that formal, but designing ways for your team to do social purpose it doesn't have to be some really complex right. multi-year thing. It can be something really simple as the Charles and the gift cards shows, but you know, even the, the Caesars entertainment, you know, that took several months to put together and, you know, and they have this amazing uh, sex trafficking expert who comes in and does the training, but it's not, you know, it's not rocket science. Right. There isn't all that. It, there isn't yeah. anything all that complicated about it. I've heard people say that it's really, sometimes it's just a simple uh, question of what breaks your heart. I've heard pastors say this. I've heard nonprofit leaders say, you know, I, I sat in a, in a sermon from a pastor a couple of years ago and, you know, the message was how can you get involved? And it wasn't necessarily to try to um, encourage people to serve at that particular church, but it was more social purpose. That wasn't the term he used, but that's mm-hmm. kind of the definition. Right. And he said, ask, just ask yourself what breaks your heart. Yeah. And if you figure out the answer to what breaks your heart, and the other question I've heard too is, what is it that you cannot not do? Right. No matter what I do, there has to be this in my job. There has to be this in my day-to-day work. And um and if you can get the answer to those two questions, what breaks your heart and what is it that you cannot not do? Yeah. You're headed right into making a, a huge difference. Yeah. And thinking? I, those are, those are fantastic. That's, that's really good guidance. Um, and I would say if you start work on a Monday morning and you end on a Saturday or Friday or however long your week is and nothing broke your heart, then wow. uh, you're not being yourself. Yeah. So, which, which by the way, is very, very typical in Common, sure. uh, workplaces. We've, we've designed them to be sterile and objective and hard edged. And we're these emotional, social creatures going in there. And so we, we know to, to, to basically crush that part of us to give that PowerPoint presentation or show the sales numbers. And it's not good for us. So if, if nothing is breaking your heart in the workplace or in your work activities, 
then it might be time to think who, how much of myself am I bringing to work? Yeah. And we can be robots and just go about and just put, like you said, just put the labels on the jars and just do that all day long. And, you know, as you talked about in the book, you know, yeah, the, the significant increases or the gradual increases might make you do more labels on more jars and more hours. But at the end of the day, you know, other than maybe, you know, a label process that could break your heart that we're spending so much money, then that's great if that's what it is. Yeah. But, you know, how to make my company more productive. But yeah, that bigger why is more important. Yeah. When you agreed to come on From the Heart with me a while back, what did you hope that message would be that you could get out? Or what did you hope maybe even one listener today would get from this conversation? For anybody who feels that their work doesn't matter, that's a painful place to be. And you don't have to stay in that place and you don't have to change jobs or careers. So I say, if your job doesn't improve the world, then it's time to improve your job. Yeah, I was just going to say those words. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, what's the best way for my, my audience to reach you? If they want to get your book, they want to learn more about the work you do. A lot of, a lot of people who watch and listen to the show, and I'm, I'm proud to say that we now have listeners all over the world. I've, I've seen the, the, the study and we've got about 14 different countries. And that might be one person in Pakistan. I, I'm not going to sit here and say we have a thousand listeners in Pakistan by any stretch, but that one person who wants to reach out because maybe they're thinking of how do I, I need some help. I need someone to coach me on how to find my social purpose. I just don't know how. I don't know what breaks my heart. I don't know what I cannot not do. Um, or that CEO who says, you know, I need a, I need a Charles Antis-like program in my company. What's the best way to reach you so they can get that, that process started? Yes, uh, the best way is to go to the URL dogoodatwork.com. Cool. And then from there you can find everything. The in terms of buying the book uh, to help with exactly those questions uh, is uh, it's, it's sold everywhere around the world. So you can actually get, uh, I mean, if, if you're elsewhere around the world, you know what your outlet is, but if you go to do good at work.com, you'll see that, you know, there's UK, Australia, uh, you can buy it in Singapore. You can buy it. You can buy it anywhere. It is in English right now. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping that your listeners are uh, okay reading sure. or listening to English right now. But, right now so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a little bit early for other languages, but uh, that's that's probably the only limitation. Part Venezuelan. Hmm? Aren't you part Venezuelan? Is that I am. Yes, I was born in Venezuela, and I yes, I am. I'm I'm an immigrant. Yep, I lived so. in Ecuador for a while, so. Ah, Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So, well, uh, B, I, this, this has gone by too fast. And um, I agree. I, I hope the listeners agree with that. I know I've gotten a lot out of this and I'm excited. And, and um, I really encourage all of you who are listening to not just pick up the book because you're going to help B, but pick up the book because it's going to help you. But even more so, pick it up because it's going to help somebody else. 
And ultimately that's what well we're, said. we're here to help other people. We're not here. You know, I tell all my students in every class I teach, I tell, I've told my kids growing up and when my grandsons get a little older and can comprehend a real deep philosophical conversation with grandpa, cause it's coming. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to warning, tell, warning, run yeah, kids, warning, run. Here comes. I got seven grandsons from nine <laughs> down to two. And, and, um, you know, the message will always be, you know, think about the other person first, that whole, what's in it for me with them, just throw that out the door, you know, what's in it for other people, serve others, give value first. And I think that's really what social purpose is all about is how can I go to work, make a living, make a life, but ultimately how can I touch and bless somebody else's life with what I do or what I give or with my talent or my yeah. touch. So, so yeah. I appreciate your time today. Yeah, no, it, it was my pleasure. And those kids are lucky to have you. Well, the I'm sooner gonna, they understand yeah. that, the better their yeah. lives will go. I got, I got to tell you a funny story, and this is you know, it's being recorded, and it's really just for you. Um, the song, It Had to Be You, I don't know who wrote it, but Harry Potter uh -huh. Jr. made it famous in, in uh, a movie, and I can't even pull that right now. I, my my nine and six-year-old uh, grandsons that live with us are both, they both have autism. And so that's an area where we, we give, and we would like to do more. Yeah. But um, most nights when I'm around at their bedtime, which is a lot now, I, I will go in after their mom and my wife have gone on, gone in and read a story and tucked them in and so forth. And I, they always ask grandpa to sing to them. And I don't have a good voice. It's not about the voice, but it's how I do it. I sing and I tickle and I, I slow the words down and speed them up. And I, you know, it had to be you, wonderful you. And, and the boys just love it. Well, a couple of nights ago, I wasn't here. And um, my daughter went in with her phone and my nine-year-old uh, grandson, Makua, sang the song and it's it, it's just it's the most oh. i'm probably gonna take it and put it on my my youtube channel or at least oh. the audio. it's just so sweet and it just that's just that that confirmed for me that maybe make it a little difference with one starfish yes and so that's why we're doing this yeah so so yeah, let me just finish let me sorry i'm all sobbing now I didn't mean to go there there's there's yeah. nothing wrong with that you're a good leader <laughs> well I'm surrounded by great leaders who yeah it's rubbing off so the name of the podcast B is from the heart so this is where you get to now tell me what's in your heart gratitude I'm I, I feel very fortunate that I got to spend this hour with you on this conversation and you know, hopefully contributed in some small way to, to your like beautiful vision of this podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure.